Jesus is alive. Go ahead and be seated now of the ministry of the Word. Amen. Thank you, music team. So, you need to be praying for Pastor. He's sick today, so I am up here. Um, and I love the opportunity to preach the Word of God, but I love it most when it's here with you, because I love you guys. Um, and so, I have much joy in this service, and I hope that we have mutual joy as we hear the Word of God be preached this morning. I've been reading, or I was reading, a book by a pastor named Sam Storms, and he wrote a book called A Dozen Things God Has Done With Your Sin and Three Things He Will Never Do. Um, And in it, he brought to my eyes a text that I had not really seen before. And so what I mean, I've read through the Bible a few times, but I just must have read over this. I, you know how you watch a movie sometimes, you just don't catch everything, or you read a book, you just don't catch everything. And that's one of the great reasons we should read through the Bible every year is because there's so many things in it we just don't catch. And this text was one of those things. And it's beautiful, it's amazing, it's true, and it has authority on our lives. So the goal today, as we unpack it, is to rightly view our sin for what it is, and then rightly view it in light of what God has done with it, okay? Rightly view our sin for what it is, and then rightly view it for what God has done with it, in view of what he's done with it. So, undoubtedly, the reaction will be for us to glorify God and to hate our sin. That will, should be the reaction of us, um, so if you would turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 7, I know that name has a different ring in this church, but it is a book of the Bible. It's a minor prophet. Micah chapter 7, I know we don't turn there very often, maybe at Christmas time, Micah chapter 5 says that is a prophecy that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. We, we go there sometimes. We don't often turn to this book, but I want to go to the last chapter of this book. And I want to preface this with... In this room, currently, sits sinners of varying degrees, right? Sinners of all different degrees. Yet I think we can find solidarity in the fact, or in the sense, that at some point we have questioned in our lives, could God really, completely, ultimately forgive me of my sin? It's been on my mind before, multiple times. Could God really forgive me of all my wrong? Some of us today here may be thinking, okay, I believe that he has forgiven me, but surely he's thinking about it every time I mess up. Surely, when I continue to sin, it never actually goes away, and it's ready to resurface and to be used as ammunition against me. Sometimes we can think that way. I stand before you as a sinner who has thought this a bunch of times, and yet it's truths like the ones that we're going to read by the grace of God that rids me of those thoughts, that rids me of those thoughts. So, just real quick context, Uh, Micah is a, like I said, a prophet. He's prophesying in the time of the prophet Isaiah, so we're familiar with that book of the Bible. He's... um, 
prophesying about a deliverer, so a hope in a deliverer, that being Jesus. He's also prophesying about forthcoming judgment, okay? So two things that kind of juxtapose together. He's prophesying about a deliverer from forthcoming judgment. And so I want to just start in the beginning of chapter 7. I want you to follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. It says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Pretty terrible stuff as we start, right? It's not something that we really want to read. But what Micah here is describing is sin and its natural trajectory, okay? So sin unkept or undealt with has a natural trajectory for more and more destruction, okay? And we can see that in our world today. I mean, there's multiple examples you probably can think of off the top of your head right now. When sin is left unkept, undealt with, it breeds all sorts of evils. Things that, I mean, as you read this, make you cringe, right? I don't want to hear that. Um, it says that in verse, what was it, four here, the best of people in this time that Mike is talking about is like a thorny hedge. No one likes thorny hedges, right? I hate thorns. Thorns are a result of the curse in, praise God, in the new earth, there will be no thorns anymore, right? Roses will be thornless. So it gets to the point where the worst of the worst of your enemies are the very people you live with. That's how bad this has gotten. That's what he's talking about here. Um, basically what we see is Romans chapter 3. This is a very familiar passage. If you can't re- see it, I'll just read it. it. As it is written, none is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, continues, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Again, troubling to hear these things. No one is good. So he describes this leads up to judgment, judgment in the form of punishment from God. So let's read verse 9a. I promise we'll get to the good stuff here. It says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. I just want to read that first part. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. The indignation of the Lord is at hand against sinners, against people like us, 
And why? Because we, they, us, I, have sinned against the holy God. We talk about it all the time, but do we really understand the seriousness of our sin? Uh, Puritans uh, used to call it the sinfulness of sin, right? This just, it's so bad that we just really can't quite grasp it. We can't quite wrap our heads around how depraved we are in our sinfulness. We get a glimpse of the Creator, of God in the Bible, the sovereign one who rules and reigns above the universe, who has made us for his glory and our joy, so that we would glorify him and experience ultimate joy. He says, I will be your God because I am everything you need, and you will be my people because I am everything you need. So we see this, and in a sense, turn our backs on him, reject him, curse him, disobey him, putting ourselves in his place. That's our sin, a displacement of God and a replacement with self. With our sin, we insult the Lord of glory to enjoy things that lead us to the opposite of joy, namely destruction and chaos. And we can see in this passage where sin leads us not to a good place, not to a place we want to be. So sin is such a great offense against the Lord that it requires his indignation to get rid of it. So let's think, the eternal wrath of God is a pretty serious punishment. We always think that, how could, how could God do that? How could God pour out an eternal wrath to pay for sin against him? How is that even possible? We like to think that sometimes, but I think it goes to show how great the offense is against that holy God. It requires a pretty serious, full and straightforward wrath, and that's the only thing that can pay for it. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. It says, The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. Like the crawling things of the earth, they shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Micah is now describing the posture of sinners who look upon the wonders of God. They are ashamed of their might because God is infinitely mightier. They are laying their hands over their mouths in amazement. They go deaf. They lick the ground like a snake. They tremble and they turn in dread to God. They are afraid. I think this kind of characterizes what Isaiah sees when he sees God in a vision. After seeing the holiness of God, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so what Micah is describing here is people that have looked upon God, and we can get glimpses of him in his word, right, through his son revealed, and we can see that and be just totally awestruck and think, man, I am lost. I'm unclean. I'm a sinner, right? When we get a glimpse of pure holiness, we then recognize our great sinfulness. So this is us. It begs the question that we can ask of God, who is like you? And the cool part about this is that's what Micah's name means. Who is like our God? That's what the name Micah in the Hebrew means. And we're going to see he's going to open with that here in a second. So it leaves us begging this question, 
so this is us. Sinners with judgment, wrath, punishment impending. And if you haven't figured it out yet, we are completely deserving of all of this. So I want to turn to words that Jesus says, and then we'll come back to this text in Matthew 5, verse 4. I might be having trouble here. You might have to turn there for me. Matthew 5, 4 is the next verse there on the screen. There we go. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We need to relearn these words. Mourning over our sin draws us to comfort. I saw this in a movie, and they portrayed it really well. Inside Out. Ever seen that movie? Yeah, it's a good kids movie. In that movie, basically what we're, the point of view from the viewer is that we're inside the head of the main character, Riley, and we're watching how her emotions interact with one another, okay? And so there's a bunch of emotions, joy, disgust, fear, anger, sadness. Anyway, to make a long story short, joy... The emotions is trying to make every memory or everything that happens a joyful one. And sadness, the other emotion, keeps messing everything up. And so joy is getting really mad because sadness is messing all these things up. There's a bunch of stuff that happened. I don't, I, it's a great movie. Go watch it. In the end of the movie, the emotion sadness actually brought Riley to a point of where she needed comforted so that she could experience joy, okay? So she's sad because they lost a hockey game or something, and her parents come, and they comfort her, say, it's okay, and the team comes over and lifts her up, and because she was sad, she could then be comforted, then so she could experience joy, okay? And so here we have in Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn, mourning over our sin, recognizing our sinfulness, so that we can be comforted and experience joy. And that's what I got as the main point of that movie. And I believe that this is how we as Christians should be, broken over our sin, disgusted with it, so that like Isaiah and like the people Micah is describing here, we will fear the Lord just so that we can fall into his arms. We fear him so that we can be comforted by him and experience joy. Uh, the next verse is Psalm 34, 18, if you could turn to that one. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Is that us this morning? Are we brokenhearted over our sin? Are we crushed in spirit because we are sinful? Good, because that's where God is. He is near to those people. So that brings us to these beautiful verses that are going to, I pray and hope, help us immensely in our walk with Christ because I think what cripples us as Christians is the inability to believe what we say we believe. Okay? We know we're sinful. But we also know that God has done something about that. But yet we find ourselves doubling back to just exhaust our tears on our sinfulness without really believing what we say we believe, what God has done with that sin. I think there's two ways this happens. We downplay our sin and disobedience against a holy God so that we virtually just can't understand his love and the sacrifice of his son. We just don't see a need for it. So we can downplay our sin. It's not that bad. It's okay. Um, just keep going on. We see what happens when you keep going on, right? The natural trajectory is not good. So we can downplay our sin so that we don't see a need for God's sacrifice, therefore not seeing his love. Or we are so crippled, and this might be most of us here, 
We are so crippled by the mountain of sin that we just keep adding to that we get lost in shame, we get lost in our guilt, and we just don't actually live in the freedom of forgiveness. That's where I find myself most of the time. The latter, like I said, portrays a lot of us. And this might be why we are stagnant in our Christian life. We weren't made to be crippled and to hide shamefully underneath our sin. Sometimes when I'm disciplining Jade, she wants to hide her face from me. She's shameful for whatever wrong she did. And I'm trying to talk to her, have a conversation, but she keeps looking away or keeps hiding her face. You probably experienced some of the same thing. That's kind of what we're doing with God. We're ashamed, so we look away. We hide our face. We hide our tears. And we would be, if God didn't do anything about it, crippled by the shame and guilt. But I want to read these next verses slowly. I want to hang on every word, and I want us Christians to bathe in the sweet words that we are about to read with our eyes, that the God of the universe says to us, the end of chapter 7, Micah starts out, who is like, who is a God like you? So in the Hebrew, what he's saying there is Micah. He's starting out with his own name. He's saying, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. That's amazing. Now imagine committing an awful sin that you swore you'd never return to. Just completely disobeying God, feeling much remorse over it, wetting the ground with your tears, crying out to God for forgiveness, and then reading this passage. Who is like our God? Through Jesus Christ, condescending to earth, living perfectly, without sin, going to the cross, dying and rising again for the sins of those who would believe in him, this verse speaks to that person. So what does this exactly look like? Let's just real quickly go over each one. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. Pardoning refers to forgiveness, but this word literally means in the Hebrew to lift, to carry, or to take. Okay? So when we repent of our sin, in a sense, God is taking your sins, lifting them off your back, and carrying them himself. Okay? He's lifting the sins off your back. And where does he take them to? He carries them to the cross in the form of Jesus to then bear them. Isaiah 53, 11 through 12. Oof, that's tough to read. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall... I'm just going to have to turn there, sorry. I can't read that. I might need glasses. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one 
I can't even read it here. Oh my goodness. Okay, my servant make many to be accounted righteous. Ready? Here's the important part. And he shall bear their iniquities. This same word here, and I'll keep reading. Therefore, I will divide him in a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Transgressors. The second bear there, or bore, it says, is the same word we get here in Micah, where God himself in the form of Jesus is bearing our sins, taking them upon himself. If you imagine Pilgrim's Progress when he has the giant backpack of sin and guilt, right? It falls off. Imagine Jesus picking that up and putting it on himself. He's going to bear it. He's going to take it. He's going to lift it. He's going to carry it. God takes our sin, bears them on the cross. Who is like our God, pardoning iniquity? The next one says, and passing over transgression. Now we have to be careful with this one because in no way does this mean that God is ignoring our sin. He does not ignore or just sweep under the rug. Like pass over that section of the quiz, it doesn't matter, right? Not like that. Psalm 145, 7. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. So implied in this verse is the omniscience of God. That he understands everything. That he knows everything. He knows each and every one of our sins. He's keenly aware of it. And like we read earlier, the wrath of God is against this sin. So in no way is Micah saying here that God doesn't care about it or care about your sin so that he passes over or pretends it's not there. The only way this is possible is because that sin was laid on Jesus instead. And he did not pass over Jesus. He punished him. In that same Isaiah 53 passage, it says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. When Jesus is gasping for air on the cross, it was God's will to do that so that many could be accounted righteous. That's us. That's Christians. He's crushing his son just to get a few more sons and daughters, right? So he doesn't pass over Christ on the cross. That's where our sins are laid. And so he's, in a sense, passing over transgression in that way. Just like in the families in the Exodus, the only reason the angel of death passed over their door was because of the blood. In the same sense for us. The only way we get passed over is because of the blood of Jesus. So who is like our God passing over transgression? This next one, and these are some really good images in our head. It says... He will tread our iniquities underfoot. So in between this one and the last one I just talked about is an insight into God's character. It says, He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. And that's when He says, He will tread our iniquities underfoot. When Jesus offers up His body, anger is exhausted, thus not lasting forever. And steadfast love, of which God delights in most, is unquestionably shown. And when we place our faith in Him, we see the genesis of God's perpetual compassion towards us, despite our sinfulness. And so, what else does He do with our sin? He tramples it under His foot. He stomps on it to get rid of it. 
The guy I was reading about, he made a connection from this passage to another passage that I just not seen of or thought of before. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Then comes the end, which he delivers the kingdom to God. Oh, whoops. Go back one. There. God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Verse 25, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he put all things under his feet. And then the next one, Romans 16, 20, is, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your, for, under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So God tramples, treads our sin under the foot of Christ, our Savior, and when he lifts the foot up, it's gone. He's not squashing a bug and then you lift your foot and you see the remains either on the bottom of your shoe or on the ground. He's treading our sin underfoot and when he lifts his foot, it's gone. It's dealt with. It's done. Death, the payment for sin, is placed in subjection to the feet of Jesus. We don't taste the punishment for our sin, yet we drink of the benefits of the grace that it brings. So who is like our God who treads our sin underfoot. Next one here. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And I'll go quick on this one. I love this illustration because um, God himself, through the prophet um, Micah, is giving us, it's basically the cherry on top of the cake of grace that we've been reading here, okay? You have this last one where we just have this great mental picture of God throwing or casting our sins into a bottomless ocean, Right? I was looking at uh, some things online, and certain objects won't ever make it to the bottom of the ocean. They'll, they'll go down to a point where they're just crushed in, into particles, right? And they won't ever make it to the bottom of the ocean. I like to think of that. God puts our sin into the, into the ocean. It falls down, even Mariana's trench. It, w- it won't even make it to the bottom because it just dissipates as it goes down. And as Sam Storm says, the author of that book, there is no submarine that can submerge to the depths of where God has cast our sin. So, who is like our God, casting all our sin into the depths of the sea? All this imagery wrapped up into these few verses goes to show that God, through his Son, puts a final end to our sin, and it never returns. Okay, so so Christians, what hinders us from glorifying God with our lives, is that we don't believe this. In practice, at least, right? We don't believe this. It's hard to believe because we keep messing up. We keep failing. We keep sinning all the time, every day. And so we look at this and we're saying, there's no way. Absolutely no way. And and what we have to interact with is one another where it's really hard to forgive and to forget like this is describing, right? We have been forgiven, yet we think about all the terrible sins we have done. We collect the worst of the worst of them into our arms. We gather them and we say, God, what about these? And he takes one, he throws it on the ground, steps on it. It's gone. He takes another and he passes over it. He takes another and he throws it into the depths of the sea. He says, what sin? And he can only do this. He can only do this. And make sure you get this if you get nothing else. Because he put them on his son for their payment. 
The next verse, Hebrews 10.10. By that we will have been sanctified for the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. One historical event. Hours, just a few hours of punishment of Christ on the cross was enough to take away our eternal payment of God's wrath forever. Once for all, Jesus was crucified, sacrificed, so that we could be forgiven once for all. The next verse, Hebrews 7, 25, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost, completely, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. One more quote from the book. He says, I will never get tattoos, but if I did, I'd get uttermost and always written on my arms from this verse. He saves us completely because he always lives to make intercession for us. So when he dies, he goes to be with the Father at his right hand. And every time we sin, God would look over, this is speculation, look over at his hands and his feet, and he says, paid for. These sins are paid for. So, we see our sin as awful. Mourn over it. But know where it is now because what God has done. It's gone. This is for believers, right? If we have repented of our sin, put our faith in Christ, this is where our sin is in light of what God has done for us. And so, we can sit back and do nothing for the glory of God because of the weight of shame and guilt piled on top of our shoulders. Or we can actually believe God did what He said He did here in Micah chapter 7 so that it no longer reigns in our body, but He reigns in our body. This forgiveness and ridding of sin is the foundation for us Christians that for the rest of our lives, we would spend it killing sin for the glory of God. We spend time killing it rather than dwelling on it. We'll start to live like Christ. What's going to stop us when we think about it, when we dwell on it? Repent. It's been forgiven. Now go and glorify God. Get rid of it. Seek to never do it again. In, in John 8, he, he talks to the, the, the woman caught in adultery. And he says, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. He says the same thing to us. Go and sin no more. So we, we get bogged down and we say, well, I can't go and edify my Christian brother or sister because I just need, I, I just need a sock in my in my past sin. You're forgiven. Now go be an encouragement. Or I can't start a Bible study at my work because I'm too great of a sinner and the other people are just going to judge me and in my past and just going to add to the hurt. You are forgiven. Now go start that Bible study and share Christ with others. Or I can't even go to God's word because I have messed up again and he's probably mad at me. You are forgiven. Now run to him in his word. God did not send his son to the cross to exterminate every believer's sin once for all so that we would continue to dwell on it. That is not the reason he did it. God sent his son to the cross so that we could be forgiven and live forgiven for his glory. We can do this, guys. We can do this, Christians. We can live like we've actually been forgiving and make a giant impact on one another and our communities because we are living more like Christ and less like the sinner we once were. 
God sent his son so that we could be forgiven and so that we could live forgiven, so that we would imitate his son, so that we would do the things he has prepared for us. The last verse here, Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When we really believe this, we can walk in those good works. Sin and dwelling on it is not holding us back because it's gone. So, I end with this. Who is like our God, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression, treading our iniquities underfoot, casting all our sins into the depths of the sea? Baker Heights Baptist Church, let's live like that's the God that we serve. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that we can see our sin is awful, but see what you've done with it. And that through your Son, Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven. And we can live like we are forgiven. God, give us immense joy that that's true. Comfort us in our mourning because that is true and because that is who you are. You won't retain your anger forever. You will again have compassion on us. You delight in steadfast love. And you are our God. We serve you. Praise be to you, God. We don't deserve this grace, yet you freely bestow it upon us in the form of Jesus through his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his intercession right now, we are forgiven and then can go do the things which you have prepared for us beforehand. Help us, God, in times of trouble, in times of immense shame and guilt, help us to believe these truths and to live like they are true. We love you, Lord. It's in the name of your Son that we can pray this. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we sing our last song.